Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. The more we kept working and having success, we found it was from collaboration with others and listening to others and solving the problem together that created the good outcome for everybody. Mm. And I think that traced to my uh, academic training, but also just ended up becoming who we are as a, as a business. And I think that's been, at least for us, as we've seen, a, a real point of difference in a time where real estate's becoming global and its owners are, are national and international, that if you can still act local and treat people local, you can have success. On this episode, I'm speaking with Paul Hyde, CEO of Hyde Developments, a family-owned commercial real estate developer and investor based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Paul and Mac Hyde co-founded Hyde Development in 2012 with a focus on urban redevelopment and brownfield sites. Since then, the company has completed over 3.8 million square feet of industrial and office development in Minnesota, Colorado, and North Dakota. Current developments include the 1.8 million square foot Northern Stacks Industrial Park in Minnesota and the 1.7 million square foot 76 Commerce Center project in Denver. In addition to his development work, Paul has been named to the business journal 40 Under 40 and one of the 100 people to know in 2018 by Twin Cities Business. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by authentic form and function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at authenticff.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at authenticff.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, happy to be here. So you live and work in and around Minneapolis these days, but you also grew up in the area. So what were you like as a youngster living up north? (laughs) Uh, The great north. It didn't used to be as cool as it is now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Game of Thrones for that. Pretty average kid. Very lucky to have a wonderful mom and dad. I was the oldest of three. Wasn't a particularly overachiever. Uh, overachieving kid in elementary school and grade school and middle school and was alerted to that and uh, loved just loved being outside. And uh, when I was a really little kid, loved playing with trucks. Back in the day, they were called Tonka toys and they were made actually in Minnetonka, Minnesota, hence the name. Yeah. And they were replicas of all the sort of iron you'd see on a construction site, loaders, excavators, off-road dump trucks, compactors, etc. And I love playing with those. And my dad had uh, built a gigantic sandbox <laughs> at our house in the backyard. And that's where I grew up playing, playing in the sandbox. And, when, and uh, when you say a, a big sandbox, you mean a very big sandbox, right? Yeah, this wasn't one of those like little rinky dink things like <laughs> the size of your plastic pools. I mean, it was. It was probably 75 square feet or something like that, uh, maybe 100 square feet. Wow. Really big. And uh, at least for me, I found it allowed my imagination 
to expand because you had to, in my mind, kind of develop <laughs> mm-hmm. all that sandbox with different things and roads and different uses. So, yeah. And I didn't figure that out until I was older, but that's where it started. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and as I understand it, I think you told me the story about how quite a few public schools were actually shutting down as you were growing up. So the, by the time you were, you know, preteen and teenager years, you actually had to end up going to a private school. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was on the end of the baby boomer era. So a lot of those schools that were built for the baby boomers didn't have enough kids anymore. And so there was a massive consolidation of of these baby boomer uh, schools. And I was getting consolidated along with a number of other schools. And my parents uh, decided to send me to a, a private school where I went to 7th through 12th grade and a place that my dad had gone, a kind of a college preparatory school that was more academically rigorous, started to challenge me. And it ended up giving me some opportunities in terms of college that were meaningful in my career path. Mm. Did you find yourself still doing things like building or kind of exploring the the design and architectural sides of things as you were in high school, as it evolved maybe away from the sandbox? Yeah, not as beautifully as you put it, but uh, (laughs) more on the labor side. I started out mowing lawns, but then ended up working for a friend of mine whose dad had a number of car dealerships and different real estate as sort of a laborer. And I would work, whether it was getting mixing concrete or hauling bricks or block to the masons or, you know, cleaning the buildings or putting down different floor surfaces or doing demolition or outside landscaping, painted a water tower one summer, a lot of, a lot of labor stuff. Yeah. That really through end of high school and and through college. And, and so, and so speaking of college, I know that we're, Moving right along here, but that's that's great because I'm excited for this next phase and some of the stories you have. When it came time to to go to college, you ended up setting sail for the East Coast. Where did you end up, and and what did you set out to study? Yeah, you know, the school I went to was a college preparatory school. It it pushed kids, at least in our town, to leave the state to go to school, and a lot of folks went to Denver. Or some went to California or, or Seattle or Portland, and a number of them went out east. And uh, so I ended up going to a, a college in New London, Connecticut, called Connecticut College, which is now a co-ed school, but was originally one of the seven sisters, uh, seven all-women's colleges, that some that went co-ed, some that have stayed single-sex. But it ended up being a great environment for me because it it gave me the chance in a small uh, liberal arts environment to kind of explore and to get a bunch of leadership positions and student government and so forth that really helped me grow kind of beyond the classroom. Mm-hmm. It ended up being a great experience. And you didn't actually go to school for any sort of architecture or building related degree. Is that right? Yeah. In the classic liberal arts tradition and probably... A fair amount of real estate developers. I went just for a liberal arts degree, and I got a double, had a double major in, in anthropology and, and history. And well, that has absolutely nothing to do with with commercial real estate and the math and the mechanics of it. 
I think it has everything to do with understanding people and communities and culture and developing an ability to listen and empathize with others that I found is so vital in terms of how we relate to our communities that we're active in and to our tenants and to our stakeholders. You said to me that the empathy that you gained from that time traces all the way to some of the the relationships and some of how the deals have come together for you to this day. How do you think that that has translated over over the decades? I think everybody kind of has to find their own style. And I think whether it's the business news publications or our culture, it's sort of promotes this idea that you have to be super tough and super aggressive and win at every encounter in order to be successful. And I thought that for the first few years, and the more we kept working and having success, we found it was from collaboration with others and listening to others and solving the problem together that created the good outcome for everybody. Mm. And I think that traced to my uh, academic training but also just ended up becoming who we are as a, as a business. And I think that's been, at least for us, as we've seen, a, a real point of difference in a time where real estate's becoming global and its owners are, are national and international, that if you can still act local and treat people local, you can have success. Yeah, and and I would say... From what I understand, that is probably also tied back to what you did on campus outside of the classroom. So at at Connecticut College, you were also into student government and honor court. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and those experiences? Yeah, just um, certainly never set out to do it, but kind of like a lot of things in life. So you sort of fall into it or somebody has this idea of, hey, I want to run for... uh, the student government position, would you run with me? And that's what happened. And for me, anyway, I had those opportunities at a smaller institution and was able to run. And like one, yeah, I won every single time. We went to a student activities council representatives for sophomore class and then became the chair of the student activities council where I managed a budget and all the on-campus concerts and entertainment for a year and then flip-flopped to... <laughs> becoming the head of the judiciary board or honor court, as you call it. And it really gave me a good experience, uh, not only uh, interacting with other students, but in respecting that different people had different roles and then working with the administration and the board of trustees ultimately to get stuff done. That really became the ultimate measure. Did you get something done? And you you can see a lot of people that sit there and complain and that's fine. They may feel good, but nothing ever gets accomplished. And I was always concerned with getting something done. And that really helped give me the first introduction to that. And frankly, the self-confidence to to do that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And as you rose and through the rankings in that college environment, you know, one might think that after you graduated, you know, you've gained these valuable skills, not only in the classroom, but also with communicating with others and, and uh, certainly the empathy side of it, early leadership skills. And at that point, you are heading out into the real world. And so, you know, in theory, it's time to jump right into a job, but that's not 
Right. That's not what happened, right? <laughs> What's the story there? Yeah, God, it seems so clear now. Um, <laughs> I had, a, my father had always uh, been a lawyer. And so I guess I sort of defaulted into that as being a, a trajectory for me after school. And that was the plan. And after we graduated, uh, we went, a bunch of friends of mine and I went to Newport, Rhode Island. And I ended up getting, we all worked at the Tennis Hall of Fame, which is the, the actual International Tennis Hall of Fame. And they have a couple of tournaments there, and it's also a club. And I ended up working on the grounds crew. You see the manual labor thing uh, again. Mm-hmm. And from that, in a small capacity, really developed, along with my work in high school, an appreciation for the men and women that actually do the work, the construction work, whether they be you know, earth workers or iron workers or carpenters or laborers or cement masons. Once you've done that kind of work and you know how hard it is and you know how hard those people work, you really have a respect for them that I don't think you otherwise would get. And I got that in part from doing that Tennis Hall of Fame experience. But I also met a a lady out there who uh, we started dating and her dad was a real estate developer. And I just really enjoyed learning from him about the real estate development business and what was involved and that was my real first exposure to the nuts and bolts of what it is and how you do it. And I just absolutely loved it and was able to kind of get the real estate bug from him in the, in the years that we were dating. It turned out that wisely, I think on her part, she decided not to follow me back to Minneapolis and <laughs> stayed in a beautiful oceanside manner in Newport, Rhode Island, <laughs> which was a wise choice. And you know, that that relationship went its way, but I had discovered the real estate business. And that's what started letting me, led me into kind of starting our own company. And so I think you're, you're speaking to it in a very, a little bit of a shy way, because the way that I understand it is it was actually a, kind of another league in terms of the, the type of people that you were able to get access to and, and almost like understand and observe at an early age, which, which in I think many ways probably also translates into the development uh, career that you've, you've built today. Completely. Whether it was seeing, I, I got elected to the board of trustees after my senior year in college, and I served for three years on that board and was treated as an equal among Wall Street bankers and famous East Coast families and intellectuals and after three years, you're not really intimidated by that. At least I wasn't and really got to know them and how, how to speak and talk to them and get things done. <laughs> mm. And then the same was true with this woman I met in Newport. Uh, her family knew a lot of very famous people from boy Martha Stewart to Yvonne Lindell to Roger Staubach, who was in the real estate business. And they're just regular folks. And once you get to see them and get to know them like that, it's like, all right, whether I'm going to talk to a big investor or a bank or a city council or political official about a project we're doing, they're all just normal people too. And you're able to be a lot more comfortable in your own skin, which makes you communicate more effectively. If we're doing our job, it hopefully allows us to convince them of some of the merits of our point of view. Mm. Ultimately, that leads to getting projects done. Right. And so one might think early career now, you're transitioning right into the real estate world. But 
there is something that happens between that experience and actually getting started with your entrepreneurship. How would you describe that? Because I think that's a really interesting piece of, of the puzzle for the, the Paul Hyde story so far. Well, after college, so I'd met this, got the real estate bug, but I still was following this idea of going to law school and went to law school. My dad had done that and I ended up just loving it. I went to a very diverse school in Boston called Northeastern and as a white male, I was the minority, which is probably was not the case at most any other law school in the country at that time. And again, it opened my eyes to all sorts of diversity and also taught me kind of the rules of the game. Mm. I never wanted to be a lawyer, but I sure enjoyed school because you learned law is what governs all of our relationships, our transactions, et cetera, et cetera. And once you know that, again, there's just nobody can take that from you <laughs> or tell you that you're wrong when you know the actual law yourself. So yeah, I loved law school, but graduated in a really crappy economy in New England. And at that time, tech market crash of the early 90s and went and got a master's degree in banking law and finance at BU, which was helpful because now I knew not only regular law, real estate law, corporate law, but I knew what the banks were, how they were regulated. I knew how to do loans and loan documents. And that gave me a lot of information in terms of a huge part of our uh, real estate development process is getting the capital. And that usually majority comes from banks. Mm. Still, I didn't know what I wanted to do, Chris. And I went <laughs> at the suggestion of my mom to some career counselor. And after two days and $500, he told me I should be a baker, a politician, or a rodeo clown. Uh -oh. And... Uh, <laughs> Real estate, nowhere, nowhere in the mix. And it wasn't until my engagement to, to this gal had broken off that I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I've got nothing left to lose. I'd worked as a lawyer for nine months after law school and moving back to Minneapolis, paid down all my loans. And while it certainly wasn't cool, moved back home with mom and dad and started a company in their basement with a $12,000 gateway computer that weighed about 500 pounds <laughs> and AOL dial-up internet at my hands to research what was a fast developing arena in states, which was the, the redevelopment of polluted sites. Yeah. So, so talk about that. This is mid-90s AOL years. We all remember that time. That dial-up sound, I think, is, is pr probably permanently etched in our, in our memories. But you started to take a closer look at your dad's work and talk to us about how that evolved and, and what that meant for you. Yeah, just another example of kind of life happening to you, you know, and just having your eyes open to it. I think the, the moral when we're done is you can't just force this stuff. You just got to see what comes your way, be open to it, and then kind of roll with it and try it out. And in that case, I, I was telling my, my folks and my dad, I'm like, I just, I just hate being a lawyer. I hate the narrowness of it. I just don't like the idea of the only way you get paid is you're billing other people. Mm -hmm. So you're you're worrying about billing people when you're eating a sandwich or running to the bathroom. And that just wasn't a program I wanted to sign up for. And he was an environmental lawyer his whole career. And Minnesota was the first state in the country to pass 
comprehensive laws to encourage the redevelopment of polluted sites. Why was this a big deal? If you remember, the dawn of the environmental movement was uh, really started by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, where she was the first person to start to connect the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the development of Industrial America, new man-made chemicals, and the disposal and use of those chemicals and its impact on human health and the environment. It wasn't until 10 years later or more, 20 years later, that the federal Superfund law was passed. And that had a cataclysmic effect on real estate development. Why is that? Because the Superfund law, without knowing what it was doing, imposed liability on anyone, anyone it could find, related to a polluted site, whether it was you who just bought the site and never polluted a day in your life, or someone that owned it 20 years ago, or someone that hauled something to or from the site, whether it was a bank that loaned to somebody who owned a building on one of those sites, everybody got dragged into the mud and had potential liability for 100% of the cleanup cost. And the result of Superfund is A, it was a lot cheaper for companies to fight than to actually clean. And B, anything that had a whiff of an environmental history was passed over from a real estate perspective. And it had a massive, massive impact forcing urban sprawl because new companies, any growth, whether it was homes or retail or office or industrial, wanted to jump over the older sites because they could be sued for having some environmental liability there. Mm -hmm. And they went to the farm fields. And it wasn't until the 90s that states and cities started to say, wait, I'm an inner ring suburb like Denver or a first ring suburb. I'm getting left behind. All these companies are fleeing my community. I have a significant reduction in my property tax base because these buildings are no longer occupied. I still have the same bills to pay for school, fire, police, et cetera. We're in real trouble here. It's when those communities started to push back that states, not the feds, responded by passing their own laws saying, we will allow innocent people, innocent developers to develop a site. And anyone from their bank to their tenant to their successor will share that exemption from liability in exchange for doing a cleanup. And once that cleanup's done, the state will issue you a liability protection. So now there was a carrot for developers to do cleanups and to take on polluted sites. And typically it was supplemented by grant programs of various sorts, which helped cover that extraordinary cost of doing that environmental remediation and getting the site clean again. My dad did the first couple of those in the state of Minnesota, and that's where I'd start to get the bug from him. And so you wrote a business plan actually around this strategy. And you, I, w- I believe it was for the first decade of the 2000s, you had the first iteration of, of your business based around these principles. What were those projects like? It was a very interesting time because there was no clear path on how this would end up impacting the commercial real estate community. It doesn't matter whether it's apartments or shopping centers, et cetera. And there was a number of folks, Denver and Minneapolis were really two of the biggest hotspots for leading the movement on this. 
which is really cool. Where I first fell in love with Denver, there were a number of environmental insurance companies started in Denver. There were several development companies that focused only on cleaning the land and then flipping it to a later developer. And we quickly learned that that's kind of selling yourself short, that the real, the real thing that this is about is trading environmental risk for better real estate risk. And that we needed to see the project through, not only do the cleanup, but to develop the buildings, lease them up, own them and manage them. And then you had a competitive advantage to the folks out in the suburbs beating each other's brains in with similar projects across the street from one another. So that's how that's how we executed our business plan under our, our name was uh, Real Estate Recycling, really from the mid-90s through 2012. Okay. And I believe it was right around that time too that that your business actually pivoted entirely, which is is really fascinating to me. And it goes back to what you said around not trying to force things and, and really sort of pay attention to, you know, maybe what needs to get done or what the opportunities are. But around that time, you officially started what is today high development. And you've mentioned this idea of of cycles in the industry that can spark ideas and in, in, in new business practices. But what was that transition like and kind of walk us through that shift? Yeah. You really have to be open to and, and enjoy change, I think, to be successful, at least from my view in the real estate business. And we saw two things. We saw the real estate market, which has always been a cyclical business. There are periods where there's development happening, and then there's periods of slowdown when there's less capital, et cetera. And there have been different reasons for the slowdowns in different cycles in the past from 9-11 to a Russian bond default crisis in the late 90s. But what happened in 2008, which has been well documented, was a, was a capital crisis, a liquidity crisis, mm-hmm. caused in large part by overzealous lending, primarily in the residential real estate business, but also in the commercial business where these loans, people would loan more money than the project merited, whether it was good or bad. And all of a sudden, the music stopped. And when that happened, all the liquidity just got sucked up into nothing. And even though you owned stuff, you couldn't borrow or sell. Or it, was just, it just froze for three years. And that was a very, very good lesson for many of us. And, and we survived, A, because... We didn't have a ton of big vacant land positions or big empty buildings. B, we kept a bunch of our buildings, so we still had some income coming in. And C, we hadn't grown our overhead so big that you couldn't afford to, to feed the people you know, working for you. At the same time that that was happening, on the environmental side, you saw a shift from our first project in 1997 which was really regarded as kind of a big deal, taking a pretty significantly polluted site and turning it into a building that we sold to a publicly traded REIT. It kept getting more and more routine, which is a good thing. And there became less and less opportunity in just the polluted sites. More and more people were comfortable doing them because the the program in the States was working so well. Mm. And the banks were more and more comfortable with doing that kind of deal. 
So we pivoted in 2012 to say, okay, on the environmental side, we can't just stick to a polluted site. It's too narrow. What we're really talking about in this cycle is an infill site. Our sites were polluted, which meant they were usually in the inner ring suburb or first inner ring city or the first ring suburb. Infill became the new word, and as it happened, became the new hot trend in the real estate community. And we saw these new influx of capital after having seen so many people get burned or nearly destroying their business in the last cycle using just their own money. There was now an influx of global capital that has continued through this day. And you make those people your partners now. And that helps you diversify your risks, takes advantage of what we're good at, which is being a developer and an operator. With having less of our capital on the line, it allows us to do more work and have less risk. Mm. And that's not just us that figured that out. That's kind of the new model uh, these days, which is capital partners and infill infill projects. Yeah, I think that you also referred to it as the uh, the value add cycle, which you've done on on quite a few of your projects. I think you've mentioned to me seventy six commerce center outside of of Denver something similar that you did with with Lynn Hall in Minneapolis. What are a couple that come to mind that are worth worth mentioning that follow that new trend? Yeah, so our project in 76 Commerce Center in, in Denver, just, just north of Denver on, in Brighton, is a great example. Rightly or wrongly, we, we looked at Denver for three years and really enjoyed the market, saw a much more stable economic base than it had been in the past, which is more speculative oil and gas, kind of upsy downsy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very different economy in Denver these days. And when we look for sites, we kind of saw sites where everybody else was. And then we said, where's a value add site for us? And we ended up buying a 122 acre site in Brighton, Colorado, right on I-76. And why was that a value add site? Well, we were kind of pioneering in the real estate term. There were not other people up there looking at this location, but we saw we got the site at a good price, which gave us some breathing room to be more aggressive on rental rates if we had to, to compete with the established I-70 airport uh, submarket. But we saw an interstate site with freeway visibility and direct link to I-80, which is one of the major east-west intermodal transportation routes in the United States. and. For whatever reason, it had been overlooked by some of the folks in Denver. And I think with our, we've got one building up at least. Our second building will be done in the spring. You're seeing a lot more attention <laughs> on I-76 corridor right now. We've, I'm aware of at least four other sites that are about to or are for sale near or around us, mm. as well as other developers starting projects on I-76. So that's what we try and do is find a way to add some value as opposed to just copy, you know, what other folks are doing. Yeah. And from my own observation, you and and I say you in terms of high development, your entire team does a great job creating places to work that aren't the, you know, trendy downtown office spaces, but that bring those same amenities and those same concepts into these spaces 
that are maybe a part of different industries and businesses that aren't necessarily, you know, up a skyscraper in, a, in downtown right. Denver, downtown Minneapolis. So in other words, you can build the cool urban projects, but you've been able to take that skill set really into these more niche, narrow industrial campuses. And, and I guess you would say that's by design, correct? Yeah, I, I think maybe it comes from having worked in laborer fields. Maybe it comes from some of the anthropology or empathy ideas, but we're also very fortunate to have some groups like my friend Max Musicant, who's started to realize that you can program spaces. And at first, that sounds really nebulous, but when you look at 76 Commerce Center or our Northern Stacks project in uh, Minneapolis, both 1.8 million square foot, 120 acre sites. These projects are going to have 1,000 to 2,500 people working at them every day. Mm-hmm. And if you can give them trails to walk on, activities during the week, and food trucks on Fridays, and something that makes it feel more like a neighborhood and less just like an anonymous, you know, Mr. Robot, (laughs) (laughs) dreary business park. Yeah. You're going to find that not only do the tenants, the workers like it more, but they tell their bosses and the bosses like in a competitive environment to find help, that they've got a place that's easy to recruit and retain uh, workers, which will likely lead to happy tenants and hopefully lease renewals. Yeah. So it's the right thing to do. It's a concept we sort of pickpocketed from the office folks who are doing it in the big office towers, as you noted. But boy, oh boy, it's really working. And I I think that the culmination of that is we just opened a brewery at our our Northern Stacks project, and we're going to try and do the same thing in Denver. It's become kind of the neighborhood cheers for the industrial park. And you get all these different folks working in different buildings, meeting each other. And it's really cool. It creates community outside of the house. And that's really when you're doing the development stuff right. Talk to me a little bit about the the idea of scale these days as compared yeah. to years ago. I know that you had a couple of good thoughts there, and I don't want to move, move by those quickly. We talked about the two trends, sort of value-add, infill, and, and then the, the capital piece. I think scale is the third big trend. And if you said, geez, Paul, what do you have your eye on? It's, it's scale. Uh, why is that? There is so much money in the world in this economic environment not earning a return, whether it's Japan or many parts of Europe, 0% interest rates or even negative interest rates. And that money wants to find a place not only to not lose its principal value, but to earn some return. And real estate's become a very good way to do that, a a much more appreciated way than it was in the past. And that's led to global infills, inflows into the United States of capital. And that there's so much coming in, it wants to move itself in big chunks. And that wanting to move capital in big chunks leads to scale. And you're seeing it with the Prologis acquisition of uh, Liberty Property Trust. They've bought several other REITs. You're seeing it with Blackstone buying other real estate companies. 
and they will tell you that they only can afford to work on stuff that's a 50 to $100 million transaction because there's so much money coming in. If they spend it in smaller bites, they're actually behind in terms of mm. the money coming in and getting it placed. Yeah. That leads to scale. And so for us to be successful, we want to be able to have scale to be able to attract those folks as investors or buyers of our projects. But it also gives you exposure in a market where it used to be a number of small local folks, each with a building. I think these days, at least in the industrial world, you need to have parks. And we saw that leasing 76 Commerce Center. We've seen that leasing Northern Stacks. Hey, tenant A, I can't put you in building five. We just filled it up, but we can accommodate you in the next building because we can. we're building that one right now. And once that one's going up, we've got another one coming after that. And that ability to have, you know, 1.8 million feet, 2 million feet, and not just 200,000 feet allows you to stay and be active in the market. As we begin to wrap up, Paul, you've made some great points around three key themes. And that's a great segue into this final question, which is around the cyclical nature of the industry and and kind of your vision, your forward-thinking visions around what's next for high development. How would you describe high development's mission, uh, looking forward, um, what do you look towards and what are you seeing in the next five to 10 years yourself? Yeah, I'm certain there will be change that we don't know or think of now. And we better be ready to move towards that. So we're always open and looking to that and trying to learn and see what's changing. I think you're going to see as a result of this trend towards scale, as we discussed, there's going to be a reduction in the number of kind of the local family-owned developers that were the bread and butter of the 90s and up through, I'd say, 2004, 5, or 6. You're going to see more large international investors trying to partner with smart local operators who can take their capital, put it to work in a project and uh, go through the work of getting the building developed, entitled, leased, etc. And so I'm trying to position ourselves to be that kind of person where we've got a track record and we've got a point of difference that some of those folks are going to be interested in. And that's, that will be the path for the future. Paul, I really appreciate your time today. I, I have one final question, and this is the kind of the red carpet question. Who else should we be paying attention to huh. out there that's doing groundbreaking or inspiring work? You you have so many great ideas and so many great observations. I'm really curious who comes to mind. Yeah. I'd say it's different people in different markets. I've always admired United Properties, who's active both in Denver and Minneapolis. They're a family-owned business, but they've figured out how to play with the global capital, and they're still fast and nimble. And it's folks like that that I emulate. And it's also folks that are willing to take risk with things that don't seem conventional. Both our 76 project and our 
Northern Stacks project, when we first started, plenty of people turned up their noses at us or behind our back. And I say that just as a fact, not as anything that I'm proud of. But once you validate the project and the location, then they start to say, oh, geez, <laughs> now maybe we need a site up there. <laughs> I like looking for those kind of people that are willing to take that sort of risk. In Denver, I think of McWinney, you know, who really did that with Union Station that changed downtown. And that was a big risk. And I'd say the same of uh, my friends at United Properties here in Minneapolis. They've yeah. taken on hard projects that need vision that end up making them a better community. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. We'll be sure to add those into the show notes for the for the podcast here. And Paul, before we go, please tell us where to find you, what you're up to, um, any links or suggestions if, if folks want to follow up with you or high development. Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Our website, highdevelopment.com is the best place. That'll have links to each project-specific website. So if you're interested in some of the kind of creative brick and timber projects that we've done, you can see those. If you're interested in some of the larger industrial parks, you can see those uh, all on our website, highdevelopment.com. Great. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.